This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. What comes to mind when I say the words pop, six, squish, uh uh-uh, Cicero, Lipschitz? Well, if you're a movie buff or a musical theater fan, you probably recognize them as the lyrics to Cell Block Tango, one of the many great songs from the musical Chicago. Chicago was first staged as a play on Broadway way back in 1926, but most will remember the musical version that opened on Broadway in 1975 and was directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse and its revival in 1996. Chicago would become the longest-running American musical in Broadway history. It's the story of two women in 1920s Chicago accused of murdering their lovers and the sensational trials that followed. Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly would become the fictional embodiment of the vices and scandals that plagued that time and place in American history. Sensational newspaper accounts of the crimes associated with jazz, sex, and the illegal consumption of booze during the time of Prohibition were the equivalent of today's fascination with true crime, but now consumed through podcasts and streaming services. The real-life Velma and Roxy were indeed two women accused of murder in the Roaring Twenties. Belva Gartner, a divorced cabaret singer, and Beulah Anon, an unfaithful wife, found themselves locked up on murder charges and facing the hangman's noose when their stories were recorded by a newly hired female reporter for the Chicago Tribune. They would become media superstars as the sordid details of their lives and crimes unfolded in the news. This is the story of Belva Gartner and Beulah Anon and Chicago. The cafes and gin joints had already been shuttered. Their guests who had overstayed their welcome shoot out into the Chicago streets after 1 a.m. when two beat cops patrolling the south side heard gunshots ring out on Forestville Avenue. They rushed to the area and found a man slumped over the steering wheel of a parked Nash sedan. He was bleeding profusely from a head wound, and the county coroner would discover the next day that he'd been shot once through the right side of his face with the bullet exiting his left ear. There was a bottle of gin and a gun in the seat beside him. They searched the area, but no one else was around. The victim was identified as 29-year-old Walter Law. Law sold automobiles for a living and was married. He and his wife, Frida, were parents of a three-year-old. But when the police ran a check on the vehicle, they discovered it didn't belong to Law, but to 39-year-old Belva Eleonora Gartner. The automobile where the slain man was found was parked directly in front of Gartner's apartment building. The officers knocked on her door, and Belva greeted the officers wearing only a robe. As they stepped inside the room to question her, they noticed a pile of clothing on the floor. A dress and a fur coat were soaked in blood. They asked Belva where she'd been that night and if she'd come into contact with a Mr. Walter Law. She said that yes, she knew Walter, and had been drinking with him at the Gingham Cafe earlier that evening. 
she admitted that she had consumed so much gin, she'd gotten quite drunk. She didn't remember anything between the time she'd left the cafe and when she arrived home, she claimed. And the blood on her clothing? I don't remember, Belva repeated. I was drunk. But when asked about the gun found in her car, Belva said that yes, it did belong to her. She explained that she always carried it because she was afraid of being robbed. She was taken into custody on suspicion of murder. Belva Gartner was born Belva Businger in Litchfield, Illinois in 1884. She had been an entertainer, a cabaret singer in her youth, going by the stage name Belle Brown. Belva had been married and divorced twice, the second time to a wealthy industrialist 20 years her senior. However, five months after they wed, William Gartner had sued to have the marriage annulled, claiming that Belva's divorce from her first husband had never been finalized. Belva had met Walter Law when he sold her an automobile. Although Belva was a decade older than Law, she and the younger married man began meeting to drink once or twice a week, and an affair blossomed. Belva was no longer the beauty she'd been in her younger days, but she was still attractive with bobbed brunette hair, a trim figure, and always stylishly dressed in furs and elaborate hats. The day after her boyfriend was found dead, lying in a pool of blood inside her vehicle, police questioned Belva further. Now she told officers a strange story about the events of the night of March 11th. She and Law had been drinking at the Gingham Cafe, and afterward he drove her back to her apartment. Belva said they began talking about the rampant crime in Chicago, and she pointed out that it was risky to be out so late at night. The risk of being robbed was a worry of hers, she said. Then she'd asked Law what he would do if they were held up. Belva said she and Law began debating about who was the more skilled with a gun, and she jokingly suggested a wager. They should toss up a coin, Belva said, and the winner of the toss would take a shot at the loser. If the winner missed, then the other would get a chance to shoot. They would continue to take turns until someone was shot. Okay, say it with me. Uh, what? She again explained that she was quite drunk, and she couldn't recall what happened next. The very next thing she did remember was seeing Law slumped over the steering wheel. But she said innocently, I had no idea what was the matter. She had grabbed Law, yelling out his name, which is how she got the blood on her clothing, she explained. At that point, she grew frightened and ran home. Her story changed slightly later that day, when she said it had been Walter, not her, that had suggested the shooting game. A coroner's inquest was called to determine if Walter Law had died by suicide, murder, or accident. The officers who had first arrived at Belva's apartment testified that she didn't appear to be very intoxicated. The manager of the Gingham Cafe, Curly Brown, insisted that neither Belva nor her date had been drinking gin. They only had ginger ale, Brown said. We don't allow gin. Yeah, I'm not sure I believe him. I mean, prohibition was in effect at the time. What's he going to say? Yeah, we served them illegal alcohol at my establishment? I think not. Frida Law, Walter's widow, was interviewed. She not only was grieving the violent death of her husband, but also had to contend with learning that her husband had been stepping out with another woman. The fact that the jury saw Belva as a homewrecker as well as a possible murderer did not work in her favor. Then a Mr. Paul Goodwin took the stand and his testimony would be even more damaging. Goodwin had worked at the auto dealership with Law, and the two had become friends. 
Law, he said, had told him just days before his death that he feared the woman he'd been seeing might kill him. Law was a man who'd had a fling, but came to regret it, and tried to end things with Belva, according to Goodwin. He had told Goodwin that just three weeks earlier, when he'd been with Belva at her apartment and tried to leave, she'd locked him in and threatened to stab him with a knife unless he stayed. He told Goodwin that he'd even planned to take out more life insurance to cover the needs of his wife and child, should she make good on her threats. The jury went out for deliberations and 20 minutes later returned with their verdict. We, the coroner's jury, find that Walter Law came to his death in the automobile of Mrs. Belva Gartner from a bullet fired by Mrs. Belva Gartner. Belva Gartner was held in Chicago's Cook County Jail to await her trial. A month before Belva shot and killed her lover, a new journalist was hired at the Chicago Tribune and assigned to cover cases out of the Cook County Jail. Maureen Dallas Watkins hailed from Louisville, Kentucky, but moved to Indiana while she was still in grade school. By the time she'd reached high school, she already aspired to become a writer. She began a newspaper at Crawfordsville High and also wrote a play titled Heart of Gold. After studying drama and playwriting in college, she eventually moved to Chicago and started her career as a journalist with the Tribune in February 1924. Watkins was hired to cover crime from the female perspective. Like podcasters who began covering true crime prior to 2018, including myself, of course, Maureen Watkins was in the right place at the right time to capitalize on the public's insatiable fascination with local crime. She found a niche covering female criminals, a topic that male reporters found too boring to report on. Watkins would have the jump on reporting some of the most newsworthy crime stories of the 1920s. She even managed to wrangle an interview with Leopold and Loeb hours before they confessed to their crime. Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were two wealthy University of Chicago students who kidnapped and killed 14-year-old Bobby Franks in Chicago in May of 1924. This heinous act came to be called the crime of the century. Their motivation was the challenge of pulling off the perfect crime. Obviously, it wasn't. But months before the Leopold and Loeb case became the crime du jour, Belva Gartner morphed into a media star largely because of Maureen Watkins' articles detailing her arrest and trial. Watkins interviewed Gartner several times, and the public clamored for more details of Belva's alleged crime and those of other women housed in Cook County's murderess Rowe. Belva reveled in the attention she received in the press and began receiving cards, letters, and presents from fans and admirers. Even her outfits for court appearances were described in great detail. One such entry read, She wore a new dress, cafe au lait, braided in black with bell-shaped sleeves and deep cuffs that clung in soft folds to her body. The cloche hat of a deeper brown matched her eyes, and the mink choker softened the lines of her throat. The public ate up these stories and newspapers sold out every day as young, old, men and women alike followed every new detail that was released with great anticipation. But before Belva's trial would even begin, a new arrival to Murderess Row would knock her off the front page and turn her crime into old news. On April 3, 1924, 
Albert Anon got a call at the garage where he worked as a mechanic. It was his 23-year-old wife, Beulah, and she sounded frantic. I've shot a man, Albert. She urged him to hurry home. When he arrived, he found a young man in their apartment slumped against a wall. He had a bullet wound in his back, and he was dead. Albert took in the scene in the room. The man's clothes were tossed on a side chair. By the look of it, an intimate party for two had taken place. There were empty wine bottles and two glasses on the bureau. A jazz record still spun on the Victrola. Beulah explained to Albert that the man's name was Harry Kelstead. She'd met him at the laundry where she worked part-time as a bookkeeper. Beulah told her husband that Harry had shown up at their door and made advances towards her. He'd been aggressive and had brought wine with him. Not knowing how to get rid of him, she thought it best to humor him and have one drink before showing him the door. But after finishing her drink and upon asking him to leave, Beulah said that Harry had, quote, tried to make love to her. She grabbed the thirty-eight caliber revolver they kept in their apartment. She told Harry she would shoot, but he kept coming towards her. She fired, and he fell to the ground. Albert called the police to report the attack on his wife and the shooting. When officers arrived, they would report that Beulah Anon reeked of alcohol. Her husband relayed the events as told to him by his wife, but they took Beulah into the Hyde Park station to question her further. Beulah May Sheriff was born on November 18, 1899, in Owensboro, Kentucky. While still a teen, she married Perry Stevens and gave birth to a son. Within a year, she and Stevens had split, and she moved to Louisville, leaving her son behind with his father. In Louisville, she met Albert Anon. The couple had wed four years earlier and moved to Chicago. About six months before the shooting, Beulah took a job as a bookkeeper at the laundry service where she'd met Harry Colstead. Although Beulah had told Albert she barely knew Harry, in reality, she'd been spending time with him over the last couple of months. They started out being friendly to one another at work. Then Harry invited her out for walks and to lunch. At some point, Beulah began inviting Harry to her apartment, located at 817 East 46th Street, when Albert was at work. They both liked to drink, and at least three times ended up spending the afternoon together, drinking, dancing, and in bed. The truth came out the day after Beulah was arrested. After being interrogated for several hours, she finally confessed to her ongoing relationship with Colstead. She said on the afternoon in question, she and Harry had spent some time in the apartment drinking. They both became intoxicated and an argument ensued. Beulah said she jokingly told Harry she was, quote, going to quit him, and he became angry. He got up as if to leave, and she pleaded with him not to go. When he ignored her and headed for the door, she became enraged, grabbed the gun, and shot her lover. After she saw him fall mortally wounded, she began to panic. Worried her neighbors had heard the commotion, she turned the Victrola up louder and continued to play the jazz record Hula Lu while she tried to figure out what to do next. Is a gal I can't forget. Her name was Hula Lou. 
the kind that gal that couldn't see the rules. He did a dancing in the evening breeze. Neath the trees. Oh, how she used to shake her seaweed bees. I never knew a man who wouldn't feel the dance. She finally called her husband. But the coroner's inquiry would provide evidence that Harry Colstead had not died instantly, but had survived for almost two hours, bleeding out onto the floor of the small apartment before finally expiring. He'd been shot sometime after two in the afternoon, and Beulah hadn't called Elbert until almost 5 p.m. The picture painted for the jury was one of a jealous, cheating wife who shot her lover in cold blood and let his life ebb away while she played records. At first, Albert Anon was furious at his wife for treating him like a chump while he worked from dawn to dusk to provide for them while she entertained men in their apartment. Somehow, his young wife was able to regain his affection, and he soon was her strongest supporter. He pulled together enough money to retain one of Chicago's top defense attorneys, W.W. O'Brien. O'Brien's first order of business was to restore Beulah's reputation in the public eye. He knew that if the public sympathized with his client— then the jury might as well. He used the press to his advantage, and Maureen Watkins was granted access to Beulah for a tell-all interview. Beulah's attractiveness and youth were remarked upon in every article written about the crime and trial. She was described as, quote, the prettiest woman ever accused of murder in Chicago, young, slender, with bobbed auburn hair, wide-set appealing blue eyes, up-tilted nose, translucent skin, refined features, and intelligent expression, an awfully nice girl, and more than usually pretty, unquote. Her clothes were also described in detail. She wore a fawn-colored dress and hose with black shoes, a dark brown coat, and a brown Georgette hat that turned back with a youthful flair. Beulah, much younger and prettier than yesterday's news Belva Gartner, now took center stage as her trial was set to begin. Beulah and her attorney O'Brien also played their trump card to gain the most sympathy. On May 8th, O'Brien announced to the press that Beulah and Albert Anon were expecting a baby. By the time they reached the beginning of the trial in May, Beulah was now being portrayed as a girl who innocently got caught up in a bad situation and had to fight for her life. When called to testify, Beulah's story changed for the third time. The press reported that Beulah, quote, took the stand in a navy twill dress tied at the side with a childlike bow. She answered questions in a childlike southern voice while turning her innocent pleading eyes to the jury, unquote. Describing Harry Kalstedt's visit to her apartment on the afternoon of the shooting, Beulah said, I saw he was drunk and I begged him to go, but he refused and asked me to take a drink first. So I did, just to get him to leave. He still wouldn't even though I told him my husband might come home and that he would shoot us both. To hell with your husband, Harry said, according to Beulah. He insisted she have another drink and then wanted to play records. After that, he tried to pull her into the bedroom. Beulah said she refused and begged him to go. It was then that she informed him of her, quote, delicate condition, thinking that would convince him to leave, but it did not. Beulah now threatened to call her husband, He'll shoot us both, Beulah said, she cried. Harry's response was to ask where she kept the gun. She didn't answer, but he headed for the bedroom. It was on the bed, and she grabbed for it at the same time he did. They struggled, and the gun went off. Harry was shot, 
and Beulah said she froze in shock. She finally roused herself enough to call Albert. Now it was the prosecution's turn to question the witness. He read the first statement she made to police, how Harry turned to leave and she'd tried to make him stay, but when he continued towards the door, she shot him. Beulah now said she didn't remember making those statements, implying that she was still in shock on the first night she was questioned. How did it make sense that she was trying to sue the man who was threatening to attack her by drinking with him, the prosecutor asked. Also, how did Harry know where to find the gun if it was the first time he'd ever been in her apartment, as she now claimed? He also pointed out that she'd testified Harry had walked toward the bedroom ahead of her, but somehow she'd been able to grab the gun first. The prosecutor also questioned her testimony that the gun had gone off when they struggled over it. So how was it then, he asked, that Harry had been shot in the back? On May 24th, the jury made their decision. In only two hours, they reached the verdict of not guilty. Beulah reacted with joy and relief, telling the all-male jury, Oh, I can't thank you. You don't know. You can't know. But I felt sure that you would, she proclaimed. Her husband, Albert, was also overcome with emotion. I knew my wife would come through all right, he said. The prosecutor was not so pleased. Another pretty woman goes free, was his only comment as he left the courtroom in disgust. The morning after her trial ended, Bueller rewarded her cuckolded husband for sticking by her and paying for her high-priced attorney's fees by announcing to the press that she was leaving Albert. Of course, she was not pregnant, and now said that her husband, quote, doesn't want me to have a good time. He never wants to go anywhere, and he doesn't know how to dance. I'm not going to waste the rest of my life with him. He's too slow, unquote. She divorced him a month after her acquittal. After having experienced her time in the spotlight, Beulah thought she could parlay her newfound fame into a Hollywood movie career and announced her plans to move out west. But her fame would be fleeting. The tide and attention turned back towards Belva Gartner as her trial was soon set to begin. Beulah Anand's trial had wrapped up and the public was ready for the next big crime story to come out of Cook County's murderess row, that of 39-year-old Belva Gartner. She'd been held in lockup until her trial began in June. Her case seemed all but wrapped up when her lover, Walter Law, was found dead in her car with a single bullet to the head. Her bloody clothing and the fact that the weapon belonged to her pointed to her guilt. But Belva would say she didn't remember anything because of how intoxicated she'd been that night. Her ludicrous story about the shooting bet was not mentioned again. The prosecution laid out its theory of the case. Belva had started an affair with Walter Law, a younger married man. When he tried to break things off with her, Belva began threatening him. His friend and colleague was called to testify that Walter liked women and gin, and it got him into trouble with this particular woman. The day before his death, the prosecutor said in his opening statement, Law had told friends that, quote, someday he'd die, and probably at the hands of the woman he went on drinking sprees with once or twice a week, Belva Gardner. It was the prosecution's belief that once the couple left the Gingham Cafe and drove to her apartment, Belva tried to make Law come inside. But he had refused, thinking of his wife and child at home and having had enough of Belva's aggressive and controlling behavior. The last time he'd been to her apartment, according to a witness, 
Velva had locked him inside and held him at knife point. He wasn't going to make that mistake again. But when he refused, she grew furious and shot him, the prosecutor told the jury. Velva, when questioned by police, had continued to say she didn't remember anything, most likely cautioned by her attorneys that saying anything could only hurt her chances of acquittal. She was represented by three attorneys paid for by her former husband, William Gartner. The defense didn't present much of a defense at all, simply counting on the state not being able to make a case against Belva. They waived their opening statement, rested without offering any witnesses, and even declined to give a closing argument. Belva's initial statement was read into the record as her only defense. She insisted that the only thing she remembered after leaving the cafe was hearing a loud explosion and then finding Walter slumped against her, dead. But she'd had more to say to reporters while locked up in the Cook County Jail. Why, it's silly to say I murdered Walter, she said. No woman can love a man enough to kill him. They aren't worth it, because there are always plenty more. Two witnesses who'd served the couple drinks that night also testified. The cafe's proprietor said that neither Law nor Gartner appeared to be drunk, in his opinion. Perfectly sober is how he described the pair. The head waiter agreed with this assessment, going even further. I wish I had always been as sober as they were that night, he testified. Following testimony given by Law's widow, who told the jury of the pain and grief she experienced after learning of her husband's violent death and the hardship of being a young widow with a child to raise, the case went to the jury. The evidence was largely circumstantial. There were no witnesses to the shooting, nor had Belva confessed to any wrongdoing. Her attorneys were wise in keeping her off the stand and making it incumbent on the state to prove its case to the jury. The jury concluded that the state had failed in this mission. On June 5th, after six and a half hours of deliberation, the verdict came back not guilty. Belva, who'd remained composed throughout the trial, now reacted animatedly. Letting out a burst of laughter, she threw her arms around her attorneys and profusely thanked the jury. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy, she kept repeating. I want to hurry out now and get some air. Frida Law, Walter's widow, sobbed and half fainted when the verdict was read. There's no justice in Illinois, she cried. Walter paid. Why shouldn't she? Walter Law's death was officially ruled a suicide. Belva Gartner lived a long life, but it was not without drama. Immediately after being released from jail, she reunited with her estranged husband, William Gartner, and they remarried. The following year, he filed for divorce again, claiming his wife Belva was an abusive alcoholic. He caught her with another man and claimed she then threatened him, saying she would murder him. Wow. She was also convicted of drunk driving in 1926. However, the couple remained together and in 1930 moved to Europe. William Gartner died in 1948. Afterward, Belva moved to Pasadena, California to live with her sister. She resided in California for the rest of her life, dying in 1965 at the age of 80. And Beulah? Well, she didn't make it to Hollywood after leaving the husband who was too slow for her tastes. Instead, she married again in 1927 to Edward Harlib, a 26-year-old divorced boxer, although his brother would tell reporters that old Ed was still married to his first wife. Beulah and Ed had known each other for six months. 
the newlyweds purchased a home in Barrington, Illinois. But the relationship was punctuated by drunken arguments and domestic violence. Her new husband beat her, and Beulah suffered bruises and twice broken ribs during their short marriage. It ended after just four months. A year later, Beulah contracted tuberculosis and died at the age of 29. Before she died, she learned that a play had been written by her old reporter friend Maureen Watkins, based in part on her life and trial. She said she was anxious to see it, as she was told the character of Roxy Hart resembled her quite a bit. I don't believe she ever did get to see the play. Titled The Brave Little Women, the play would transform Beulah Anon and Belva Gartner's 15 Minutes of Fame into two of the most recognizable characters in American musical theater history, Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly. Maureen Watkins made a name for herself in the newspaper biz after her daily reports in the Chicago Tribune on the trials of Belva Gartner and Beulah Anon became front-page stories. However, Watkins left the Tribune not long after the trials ended. Some said she became quickly jaded by the cutthroat newspaper business, while others speculated that she regretted her part in turning two murderesses into sympathetic figures, which resulted in their acquittals. Whatever the reason, Watkins returned to her other love, the theater. She joined the Yale School of Drama and wrote the first draft of her play, Chicago, initially titled The Brave Little Women. Besides Chicago, Watkins had also considered the alternate title, Play Ball. Her script was written as a play, but not a musical yet. Drawing upon the two murders she covered for the Tribune, she based the three main characters on the three most colorful figures from the real-life crimes and trials. Velva Gartner was transformed into Velma Kelly, a vaudeville performer who shoots and kills her husband and sister after finding them in bed together. Roxy Hart is a thinly disguised fictional version of Beulah Anon. Roxy, married to nice guy Amos, the Albert Anon character, of course, is cheating on him with Fred Casely. She kills Casely when he attempts to break off the affair. Billy Flynn, the flamboyant attorney who defends both Roxy and Velma, is based on a composite of two defense attorneys in the actual trials, W.W. W. O'Brien and William Scott Stewart, although it said Billy Flynn most closely resembles O'Brien. The play was a commentary on women's changing roles in the jazz age, the public's fascination with true crime stories in the news, and the cult of celebrity that sprung up around such stories. Watkins may have parodied herself a bit, or at least female reporters in general, in the character of reporter Mary Sunshine, who was easily manipulated by Velma and Roxy. The play debuted in 1926 and had a successful 172 performance run on Broadway at the Music Box Review, now the Music Box Theater. Chicago was made into a silent film in 1927, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. It was later remade in 1942 into a film titled Roxy Hart, starring Ginger Rogers. In the 1960s, dancer and choreographer Gwen Verdon brought the play to the attention of her husband, Bob Fosse. She encouraged him to seek out the rights to bring the play back to Broadway. Fosse asked Maureen Watkins for her permission to stage the musical. She was now in her late 60s, but she refused. He continued to try and convince her over the next several years, but she would not be swayed. When Maureen Watkins died in 1969, Fosse and Verdon were able to purchase the rights to the play from her estate. Fosse collaborated with composer John Kander and lyricist Fred Ebb to develop the score that is most well-known today, including the songs All That Jazz, Cell Block Tango, 
and Razzle Dazzle. Chicago the Musical opened on Broadway on June 3, 1975 at the 46th Street Theater and ran for a total of 936 performances. The original cast featured Cheetah Rivera as Velma Kelly, Gwen Verdon as Roxy Hart, Jerry Orbach, yes, Detective Lenny Briscoe from Law & Order himself, as Billy Flynn, and Barney Martin as Amos Hart. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Chicago became the longest-running musical in Broadway history. It also garnered scores of Tony Awards and nominations, including Best Musical, Best Original Score, and Tony nominations for Orbach, Rivera, and Verdon's performances. Chicago was also revived several times, in London in 1979, and a 1996 Broadway revival among many. And I also love the 2002 film version of the musical, directed and choreographed by Rob Marshall. The film stars Renee Zellweger as Roxy Hart, Richard Gere as Billy Flynn, who knew he could dance, and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma Kelly. It won six Oscars at the 75th Annual Academy Awards, including Best Picture. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We want to find out a little bit more about our listeners. So if you have about two minutes, go to survey.libsyn.com slash onceuponacrime to fill out a quick survey. I'd really appreciate it. There's also a link in the show notes. Don't forget that you can also find Once Upon a Crime on YouTube. Click on the link in the show notes or look for us under Once Upon a Crime podcast. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.